Well, hello there. This is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. As our listeners know, getting the meds right means taking a personalized approach. This means considering a variety of patient-specific parameters, such as a patient's age, weight, and organ function, socioeconomic factors, and increasingly, genetic polymorphisms. Uh, There's been considerable interest in using pharmacogenetic testing to guide antiplatelet therapy, as we know that both the safety and efficacy of antiplatelet drugs, particularly clopidogrel, are influenced by genetic variability, which controls gene expression and therefore enzymatic activity. In theory, using pharmacogenetic testing seems like a no-brainer. But in practice, the benefits of genetic testing to guide treatment decision hasn't proven to be as useful as some had hoped. Nonetheless, we've made steady progress in the last decade to understand how and when genetic testing is useful and might be able to improve patient outcomes. A recent meta-analysis published in the Lancet reported the outcomes of guided therapy versus usual care in patients undergoing a percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI. And joining me today to discuss this meta-analysis and the use of genetic information, as well as other laboratory tests to guide antiplatelet therapy, are Dr. Rob Howe and Dr. Kiana Green from the West Palm Beach VA Medical Center. Dr. Green is the PGY2 cardiology pharmacy practice resident, and Dr. Howe is a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology, as well as the PGY2 cardiology residency program director. Dr. Howe has been a frequent contributor to iFormRex, so it's great to have Rob back on our show. And Kiana, it's great to have you on the podcast as a first-time contributor. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Stuart, for having us back. Uh, exciting to talk about this, although, again, as, as you said, the evidence hasn't always been as positive as we hoped it would be. Thank you for having us, Stuart. I'm really excited to be a first-time contributor to this podcast, and I'm really excited to talk about this meta-analysis with you today. So, Kian, I'm going to direct this first question to you. So, uh, before we talk about the paper that you reviewed in your commentary, I'd like to get a better understanding, a better sense of the state of the science and the art of using tests to guide antiplatelet therapy. Prior to the advent of pharmacogenetic testing, some researchers were using platelet function tests to guide treatment selection. And, of course, more recently, genetic tests have been used. What kinds of tests are commonly used these days in studies, and how much predictive value do they really have? That's a great question, Stuart. So when we're considering initiating antiplatelet therapies in our patients, or even if we want to make a change after an antiplatelet therapy has been started, we really have those two tests that we can use to determine the patient's response. And either platelet function tests or genetic tests are the two that we have in the toolbox. First, looking at our platelet function testing, these really determine on-treatment platelet reactivity, which means that the patient has to be on therapy in order for us to define that response. Patients who have a high on-treatment platelet reactivity are at an increased ischemic risk, whereas patients who have a low on-treatment platelet reactivity are at a higher bleeding risk. Unfortunately, there is variability in the cutoff values that define platelet reactivity. 
depending on the specific type of platelet function testing used. And currently, there's no clear consensus as to what those cutoff values are. Also, a patient's on-treatment platelet reactivity is extremely variable and can be impacted by disease states, genetics, age, and what type of lab assay was used. The big benefit of using platelet function tests, ideally, would be to identify those patients who might benefit from either de-escalation or escalation of their P2Y12 inhibitor therapy. However, attempts to use these types of tests in practice have historically failed to improve patient outcomes. Turning over to the genetic tests, specifically for clopidogrel, we are looking at the CYP2C19 enzyme and the STAR2 and STAR3 alleles, which do confer a poor metabolizer status and might result in an increased risk of ischemic events through decreased clopidogrel activation. A big pro is that these tests are now available through rapid bedside assays, which allow for quicker test results and quicker ability to assess a patient's genetics to determine the best P2Y12 inhibitor therapy, which is especially useful in our time-dependent situations, like a patient being emergently sent to the cath lab for a PCI. However, multiple factors from the patient can contribute to their antiplatelet response, and just the assessment of the genetic polymorphisms alone might not tell us everything we need to know in order to make the right decision for their P2I12 inhibitor. In fact, allelic variants in the CYP2C19 enzyme are estimated to account for only about 12% of clopidogrel variability and platelet reactivity. So it's not clear whether or not genetic information alone really correlates to those clinically relevant outcomes. In terms of predictive value for both types of tests, it's difficult to extrapolate that information from the earlier trials and previous studies as many either did not have power or just failed to find value in utilizing these tests clinically. Specifically, looking at some of the landmark trials like Gravitas and Trigger PCI that looked at platelet function testing, these ultimately failed to improve clinical efficacy, although they did see an improvement in platelet reactivity numerically. Other studies looking at genetic testing like Taylor PCI and Popular Genetics were the ones that lacked statistical power to assess efficacy endpoints with regard to ischemic events. So with all that in mind, that's where this meta-analysis comes into play to give us a better idea of what we should be doing. So Rob, let's talk about the study you critiqued in your iFormerX commentary. The study is entitled Guided versus Standard Antiplatelet Therapy in Patients Undergoing Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And the paper was published in The Lancet in April of 2021. We provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website. My guess is that most of our listeners haven't actually had a chance to read that paper yet. So can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings? Yeah, absolutely. So ultimately, the investigators here put together a meta-analysis uh, of evaluations looking at patients undergoing PCI who had their antiplatelet therapy guided by either platelet function testing or genetic testing in order to decide what antiplatelet therapies were going to be used versus standard care. And as we'll get into this, I'm sure that they really essentially created a kind of mixed 
trial salad here when looking at the different types of strategies for how these guided therapies were actually done. Um, as I mentioned, the therapies that were included, or the studies that were included, included data sets that could be guided and interventions that would be guided by either genomic analysis or platelet function testing. And those included actual interventions that could either be escalation or de-escalation uh, types of antiplatelet interventions. Those escalation strategies included switching clopidogrel to ticagrelor or prazogrel, doubling the dose of clopidogrel, or adding celastazole in some of the older analyses. Uh, the trials that included de-escalation uh, interventions of antiplatelet therapy included those, conversely, who moved from ticagrelor or prazogrel down back to clopidogrel. Ultimately, investigators chose 11 randomized controlled trials and three observational analysis to include, ultimately including just over 20,000 patients in this meta-analysis. As a whole, guided therapy was associated with a 22% reduction in the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events without a significant difference in the rates of any bleeding. There was a slight reduction in minor bleeding, but overall, no overall reduction in any bleeding. Now, the authors do highlight that these efficacy and safety benefits may have possibly been different based on whether we looked at randomized control trials versus observational data. But realistically, when you examine the p-values for heterogeneity between those types of evaluations, as well as looking at the interventions that use platelet function testing versus uh, genomic analysis or escalation or de-escalation strategies, there was no significant heterogeneity that was found among those analyses. So ultimately, they concluded that there was a consistent effect across the board in these studies. So overall, the authors concluded that a guided selection strategy of antiplatelet therapy management and selection improved clinical outcomes versus uh, standard care in patients undergoing PCI. Well, Kiana, um, this meta-analysis suggests that guided therapy can improve patient outcomes, reducing the occurrence of major cardiovascular events and perhaps some bleeding events following PCI. But while a meta-analysis is extremely useful, there are many things that can impact their internal validity. And of course, just because a meta-analysis has 10 or 20,000 subjects, it doesn't mean that the results can be widely generalized and applied. So I'm wondering what you believe the strengths and weaknesses of analysis are. Do you have any concerns about the design and conduct of the systematic review or the meta-analysis? So one of the largest strengths I would say that this study has going for it is that it did increase that overall power to find benefit with using the guided antiplatelet approach. So it was good, we were able to increase that power to detect a difference, but that left us with trying to figure out what to do with this information. How do we make sense of seeing this benefit as a result of perhaps putting a bunch of trials together? The investigators did try to help us as clinicians make sense of this result by performing different analyses on the data. So like Rob touched on, they looked at outcomes between a de-escalation and escalation strategy, platelet function testing and genetic testing, and they also performed a sensitivity analysis that looked at the primary composite outcome when one individual study was excluded at a time. They really tried to find where that benefit lies 
and what drove that primary outcome. But unfortunately, they were not able to find a difference no matter how many ways they manipulated the data. And this becomes a little problematic with how to translate this into any useful information that we can apply clinically to practice. So when questioning why we saw this benefit in the primary outcome, without any identifiable intervention that necessarily drove it, that really highlights the limitation of heterogeneity in this meta-analysis. The investigators tried to answer a lot of questions to help us guide practice. And in order for them to do so, they had to include a wide range of studies that looked at different interventions and different outcomes. But ultimately, there was no consistent message across the board. And this certainly complicates the overall interpretation of that benefit that they saw. So really, exactly like you said, just because this meta-analysis included over 20,000 patients, that doesn't mean that we can take this information and necessarily apply it to our practice. Unfortunately, we're left knowing that doing something may very well improve patient outcomes, but we don't know exactly what or when to do it. And I think that's the biggest limitation of this meta-analysis. So Rob, I'm curious whether you believe this paper should influence practice. Uh, Should we be routinely ordering platelet function tests or pharmacogenomic tests to guide antiplatelet therapy. This study looked at a very specific patient population, which were patients undergoing PCI. But do you think these tests should be used to guide therapy in other clinical scenarios? And are you using these tests in your practice to guide therapy now? So I'll answer a couple of those questions, maybe starting first with what we do and then kind of work our way back. Um, so ultimately at this point, as far as for, for us, we don't routinely do these tests. Um, and really that's in line with the current guidelines. So according to ACCHA guidelines, there is a class three general recommendation that there's no real benefit to routinely doing pharmacogenomic or platelet function testing because ultimately we don't really know what to do with the data. Um, Now, with that being said, uh, would practice change based on this article? Probably not. I think as Kiana uh, alluded to, um, really, we have a hodgepodge of interventions here that in order for practice to change, you kind of have to know exactly what to do. And unfortunately, while it's suggested, again, that doing something is of benefit, we really don't know what that something is. So what's going to really require is for individual clinicians to think about, okay, where can I possibly use these strategies to improve patient outcomes? or uh, economic outcomes as far as utilizing these to guide practice. Now, as far as where platelet function testing and genetic testing fit in, we generally think of the selection of P2I12 inhibitor therapy to be made at the time of PCI in the cath lab. And I think that's kind of the environment where perhaps having genetic information on patients could really help interventional providers understand, okay, well, what's the best P2Y12 inhibitor therapy for a particular patient? So having that genomic information really validates that, yes, this patient is going to do okay on clopidogrel, or no, they're likely to be a poor responder, so let's move to more aggressive therapies. And I think if you have that genetic information, clinicians then are pushed to use higher rates of those more uh, intense P2Y12 inhibitors, and we are possibly able to improve outcomes by doing that. So I think that is a a real part where genetic information is going to be useful. Now, shifting over to kind of our patient population and kind of most where most of the listeners kind of exist in the ambulatory setting, I think there is still a role for these tests, uh, specifically 
potentially having genotyping data again in the same instance could help validate for some patients that the, the cost they're spending or the potential risk they're exposing themselves to by taking more uh, potent P2Y12 inhibitor therapy is useful, especially if we know or if we knew that patients were likely to be poor clopidogrel responders. So it definitely would be kind of both clinically and maybe even economically worth it to pursue those more intense therapies. And then with regard to platelet function testing, perhaps this would be useful in settings where patients want to know, you know, am I really getting the most out of my therapy? Again, as Kiana alluded to, we can do different types of platelet function tests. We don't have great cutoffs to really understand, okay, what is an adequate response, but we do have general ballpark. So if you had a patient and it had helped involve your shared decision-making about continuing versus possibly intensifying or de-escalating therapy, perhaps having that information could really help a patient understand, are they actually getting the most out of their therapy with continuing, say, clopidogrel or switching down to clopidogrel and then checking platelet function testing? versus knowing, well, you know, patient would be better off maintaining therapy with a more potent P2I12 inhibitor. Now, these are all kind of thoughts. Uh, and ultimately, I think the the disappointing thing is that while we're talking about, you know, these might have benefit, we still really don't have a good evidence base for how to apply these. Hopefully in the future, we'll have more focused, adequately powered interventions uh, to kind of help us understand exactly how to apply these in practice, because I really think you need that to really help sway practice and get these used in practice. Because right now, again, we're left with the understanding that, well, doing something is good, but again, we don't exactly know what to do. Well, Kiana Rob, thank you for joining me today to discuss the use of pharmacogenetic testing and platelet function testing to guide the selection and dosing of antiplatelet therapy. Uh, I think these data suggest that the tests might have some value in some specific patient circumstances, but ordering the tests in a thoughtful manner and having the information available to you when you need it, and then, of course, using the information appropriately, because uh, many clinicians don't quite understand the results of these tests. Well, tell us what you think. Should we routinely be using tests in ambulatory care practice to guide decisions, or should they be reserved only in acute care settings, perhaps only in patients undergoing PCI? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free, so sign up today. And for those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, check out the American Pharmacists Association's board prep and recertification program for ambulatory care specialists. We've partnered with APHA to make this commentary and podcast and many others available for board recertification. To learn more about their program, click on the link posted below the commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to thank Jessica Wooster from the University of Texas at Tyler, who joined the advisory board of iFormerX about a year ago. Jessica has written commentaries about transitions of care, reviewed commentaries, and, and recruited new authors. She was one of the speakers for the iFormerX webinar this past fall, and she's offered a lot of great ideas during our editorial and advisory board meetings. So thank you, Jessica, for being an active and engaged iFormerX member. If you want to get more involved, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Our community of practice is only possible with the help of volunteers like you. So until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, 
signing off.